0: MVP is sort of an interesting term in this concept. We did have an MVP, but it was like the maximum viable product because Evernote was a big, complicated, super powerful application. And there were five different flavors of it on five different platforms. You know, tech debt is not a novel concept. You know, there there are some pretty well-established approaches to figure out how to go through this. The challenge really was that most of those approaches are are designed to help you pay down and restore a balance in the background. And we'd gotten to the point where there wasn't any background left. I'm Ian Small, CEO of Evernote.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laporte, And today, how Ian Small stepped into the world of Evernote to increase innovation and product velocity. All this and more on Code Story. Ian Small is a Canadian and claims that is the most important thing about him. Tech started for him when he was 12 years old, when he got a bad grade on a homework assignment, bought the manual, and became an expert on the machine. Outside of tech, he likes to do home renovation. As he says it, when there's a power tool in your hand that could potentially cut your arm off, you tend to focus on it. Ian joined Evernote in 2018 to solve a big problem. The company was stuck behind a wall of technical debt which was blocking its way to innovation in order for the company to grow and thrive in current times they had to get out from underneath these problems. This is his creation story at Evernote.
0: Evernote got started as a note-taking app. That part's probably fairly obvious because it's right there in the name. Our mission has expanded significantly from when the company was was created. Really, the company was created not to be a note-taking app, but to be an extension of your brain. When the company was founded, the best translation for extension of your brain was, okay, we'll help you take notes. But since then, we've really expanded the mission significantly from what used to be a sole focus on helping our users remember things to today, helping our users remember everything and accomplish anything. When you really look at what Evernote is today, it's a cross-platform productivity app that serves as an extension of your brain it helps you collect and manage all the information that's most important to you in your life, whether it's at work or at home. And it makes you easier to focus on accomplishing the things you want to get done. And we do that, you know, by connecting your notes, your schedules, your priorities, your tasks all together and giving you a way to, you know, feel like you're in control of them instead of them being in control of you. And find, you know, more time for doing other things in life. Evernote is a company that's been around for a long time, pushing probably 15 years uh, at this point in time. So, I came into Evernote in late 2018, you know, largely because the company was a little bit stuck. You know, we'd successfully made a really difficult transition from being an eyeballs kind of company to being one with a sustainable business model. But in the process we'd gotten stuck. And, you know, the root cause of that was pretty clear. You could get that whether you talk to the customers, whether you talk to the employees. It was that our ability to innovate was fundamentally stalled by really a combination of product and technical debt that had been accumulated for upwards towards a decade. You know, the infrastructure that we had simply took too many people to maintain, and it was too hard to innovate on the product definition had diverged a lot across the different platforms we supported because we run on iOS and Android and web and, and Windows and Mac and now Linux and now Chromebook. And The fact that we had different product definitions on different platforms and different code bases really led to a place where you know we had a problem with product velocity. We couldn't actually ship significant new features very easily and that led to both customers and employees being frustrated because you know we wanted to move Evernote forward customers wanted to move Evernote forward but we just couldn't and and that was that was really where Evernote was when I came in and undertaking that problem and getting us through that phase of being stuck and back into the business of innovating and moving the product forward that was that was really the challenge
1: Tell me about your MVP, right? In you know, the MVP gets thrown around in the product, right? Minimum viable product. But maybe it's your minimum viable approach or how you stepped out and approached solving this problem, ginning up the innovation, changing the, the culture of the company. Tell me about your starting point.
0: MVP is sort of an interesting term in this concept because we did have an MVP, but it was like the maximum viable product because Evernote was a big, complicated, super powerful application, and there were five different flavors of it on five different platforms. And so one of the things we did need to figure out was what did we think the MVP really was, because you couldn't even take the combination of all five because in some cases they conflicted with each other, so choices had to be made. And so we did, we did go through a little bit of that process, but, but really, I think the to your point, like what, what's the approach you know tech debt is not a novel concept in the world of tech and you know there there are some pretty well-established processes to approaches to figuring out how to go through this the challenge really was that most of those approaches are, are designed to help you pay down and restore a balance in in the background and we'd gotten to the point where there wasn't any background left this had to be a foreground task and so I think really the biggest single decision that we made was to go quiet as a company for somewhere between 18 and 24 months. We were, we were actually very open with the users and in our community we just said, hey, we have a fundamental problem here and we're gonna actually pay attention to the fundamental problem. And that means we're not gonna be shipping very much. We just ask you to be patient and the goal for us is to come back with something that we can all move forward with again together. Um, but we need you to kind of hang on for the ride. This approach that we took, the minimum viable approach when you're in this kind of situation, is to just communicate openly with all your constituencies. And when you want to do something like this in tech, you know, you have three constituencies that you have to worry about. You have your customers, you have your employees, and you have your investors. And if you're gonna undertake a big 18 month to two year push during which time you're not gonna ship very much of anything, That's a hard journey to be on, and it's hard for the customers, it's hard for the employees, and it's hard for the investors. So you have to communicate really your intent and motivation for doing it and your reasoning for doing it really clearly upfront to all of those communities because if any one of them isn't bought in, it won't work. Getting those three communities aligned upfront, that is actually the approach and it's it's communication driven. I will say the rest is just execution. Trust me, it's a lot of execution and it's painful and, and it takes a long time, but getting everybody aligned up front is super important because that's the only way you have the staying power to stick with it for as long as you need to stick with it.
1: I'm curious how the product progressed from that point. You've got a maximum viable product, right? And you're trying to figure out how to bring innovation back. You've got everybody aligned. How did you execute on that? And I'm curious how how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or address or or change in the product.
0: What's amazing about Evernote is every company in in tech likes to say that they have a vision, but There's not a lot of companies that have a vision as vast as the one that Evernote was founded with, you know, which was to be an extension of your brain. That's a vision that has running room, you know, forever. And yet, if you think about 15 years ago, what it might have meant to be an extension of your brain versus what today it could mean to be an extension of your brain and what what the underlying technology is now capable of you immediately start to realize wow there's there's a lot of places that you could stay true to that vision and choose to take the company the mission of the company was expressed simply in two words remember everything our goal in being an extension of your brain was to help you remember and what we did as we were thinking about how to move forward was we realized two things were true one In terms of what technology would enable us to do, we could actually expand beyond remembering. Two, and in terms of what our customers wanted to do, they also wanted to do more than just be able to remember and and not forget the most important things in their life. And so we expanded this idea of remember everything and we moved from a two-word mission to a five-word mission, which was remember everything and accomplish anything. We really wanted to move from information to action. We wanted to help you move from helping you remember to helping you get things done. And in so doing, what you were going to accomplish was less relevant to us. Evernote is an enormously horizontal tool. You will find it today in use by, you know, people who are teachers, people who are business owners, people who are salespeople, people who are selling houses, architects, playwrights, monks. And so Evernote's this hugely horizontal product. And what we've learned over time is it's not Evernote that's important. It's what our users do with Evernote that's important. It's what they are accomplishing, whether they're writing a book or curing cancer or selling a house or running a business, that's what's actually important. And we want them to be able to accomplish that thing. And so we knew that that was the direction in which we wanted to mature the product. But the question then I think that you asked was, well, then how do you actually build the roadmap? We have a user base that numbers in the millions. So we have a, a huge advantage of having millions and millions of users who use Evernote every day. And one of the things that we can do is we can focus uh, on, on on that user base to give us some data and some insight. And we looked at what our users were using Evernote today to do. We used surveys, we talked to users one-on-one, we used anecdotal evidence, and we built a set of profiles for what our users were doing. And we learned things like, "Hmm, 40% of our users are using Evernote to keep track of the things they need to get done. But Evernote provides absolutely no support for task management. Maybe we should solve that. More than 40% of our users are using Evernote to take notes in meetings, but Evernote doesn't do anything to make that easier or more straightforward. Maybe we should do something about that. And we started taking what our users were already using Evernote to do without any support from us and using those as the vectors in our roadmap to start to pivot around so that we knew that the things that we were trying to ship were addressing areas that users were already using or misusing Evernote for. Sometimes the most interesting thing in a roadmap is how are users misusing your product and we took all that insight and we turned it into uh, you know a fairly focused roadmap that said okay if we want to move from remembering to accomplishing let's start with managing everything you need to get done and helping you get through that process. So that was an entire push into task management. And let's also start with this other part of your day, which is the meeting, which is a place where you get things done and you need to remember things and you have to interact with other people and start to bring in your calendar into Evernote. Take that calendar and start to connect it to your notes in a way that we can actually start Connecting dots for you as a user and help you actually be more productive in these meetings.
1: So, how did you go about building your team or maybe adjusting your team or or centering your team around this effort and, and you know what did you look for or train in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses?
0: I mean, I think a couple of things happened, right? We we decided we were going to go on this on this journey. And you know, in that process, as I said, we communicate really clearly um, with, with uh, the team and get them on board. But as a part of that, some people naturally opt out. And you know, they just decide they're not in for that particular journey that, that the company is going to go on. And, and if that's the case, it's actually good that they choose to get out of the boat because you want everybody in the boat dedicated to getting to the end of the journey and really pulling um, in the same direction as hard as they can. And so that, that sort of self-selection process that happens in a moment like this also gives you opportunity. It gives you opportunity to build the team and bring in both skill sets and outlooks that kind of align with the type of investments you're trying to make in the company and with the plan you're trying to execute. We didn't just rebuild the product, we also rebuilt the way the company worked. and. We created an environment which was very transparent uh, in which, you know, we were super clear about where we were trying to go and why we were trying to get there and pushed the vast majority of the decision-making down into the hands uh, of the team and also sort of structured the company um, and the development arm around sort of modern uh, software development principles so that teams could run at their own pace with their own agendas within the rubric of this overall strategy we were trying to execute. That's definitely something that over the last uh, you know, three years, as we have rebuilt the product and launched the product and now innovating on top of the product, we've also really um, strengthened the team significantly.
1: So I want to flip to scalability. And, you know, scalability can be organizational scale. It can also be technical scale. And you mentioned, you know, some things that needed to change or needed to be done tech-debt-wise to really enable the innovation, but also you're sort of changing approaches. So just tell me about how you approach scalability in both of those facets.
0: There's no question in, in, in 2018, before I showed up, You know, the architecture that had served the company well for close to a decade before that was really at its limits, so much so that the team was having to rip functionality out of the product in order to keep the product up because some parts of the architecture had reached scalability limits and there was literally no easy way past those scalability limits. A large chunk of The work that was done, you know, in 2019 and 2020 to set us up to be able to push forward was about re-architecting the software, uh, both on the client side, but also in the cloud. And in the cloud in particular, from a scalability standpoint, you know, we moved from a a sharded Java monolith architecture, uh, which was, you know, a perfectly reasonable answer to the problems that the company had 10 years previously. And we moved from that to what we would see today as a much more modern architecture, microservices oriented with horizontal cloud, you know, cloud storage, et cetera. And in that process, we also removed some of these single points of failure uh, that we had from a scalability standpoint and eliminated them by re-architecting uh, around them. That was a pretty significant undertaking because the challenge is not simply, oh, you know, could I build one of these from scratch? The challenge is, how do I build one of these and move millions and millions and millions of users over onto it without any of them noticing and without having downtime or having a hiccup? That's actually really hard. Our ability not just to re-architect, but also to migrate a running service from one aged uh, platform to a modern platform was really key for us um, to sort of detonate the scalability limits that we're really standing in our way.
1: The migration of an existing product is always extremely difficult. You're essentially moving or switching the foundation of a house. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of coordination.
0: Yeah, I think one of our senior uh, technical folks uh, said, it's not like changing the wheels on a moving bus. It's like changing the engines on a flying jumbo jet because if you get it wrong, people find out really quickly. Because we kept the customers up to date along the process about you know where we were in our journey and what we were working on. And from time to time, we would make an update that went something along the lines of, instead of, oh, and we're about to do X, oh, three months ago, we did X, and you didn't notice, and that's good.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built since you've you know, joined Evernote, what are you most proud of? There's
0: a lot we've done that is actually pretty remarkable over the last three and a half years. In a lot of ways, the company is completely reborn. The product is reborn, the way we work is, is reborn. If I was gonna sort of think about things, you know, we already ha- talked about one, the expansion of our mission from remembering to accomplishing, That's a meaningful shift and we've seen that shift in mission translate into shift in engagement from users who are adopting the product for the first time and actually seeing users embrace the new Evernote as they come in and experience Evernote and they don't have a previous view of what Evernote is, they just take it as it is and see how they embrace um, the new things we've done That's actually something we're very proud of to really be a productivity product today rather than just a note-taking product. Our newest features, which are uh, productivity-focused, they have the highest uptake we've seen in years for any new feature we've ever introduced to Evernote. And that's a good sign we're heading in the right direction. The biggest winner though, if I was to step back and think what are we most proud of, it's really that collectively we have turned Evernote back into a dynamic living product that gets better every two weeks relentlessly and that is returning real value to our customers in exchange for the time that they have invested with us and continue to invest in us. And being able to take the company from a state that was stalled and the product from a state that was stalled and get back to being a living, vibrant product that is moving forward, I think that's something that every single person in the company is enormously proud of.
1: Well, Let's flip the script a little bit. Ian, tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: Mistakes? We don't make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess the good news is we didn't make a mistake that when we were changing the engines on the airplane, You know, one of the biggest challenges that we faced was that we literally had five products running on five platforms with five different feature sets and five different UXs. So if you saw, I don't know, Evernote on a Windows machine and you saw Evernote on an iPhone, you really wouldn't know they came from the same company, except for the fact that magically your data was in the two places, so you assumed at least there was something going on behind the scenes but the apps looked and felt completely different. Functionality was in different places. Different functionality was available on the different platforms. We knew that one of the things we wanted to do was to converge the UX so that if you learned Evernote on one device, you wouldn't have to relearn it on another device. I mean, obviously, if you're moving from a, I don't know, a laptop to a phone, the interface is gonna be different, but it can have familiarity about it and similarities about it. And so you as a user can really quickly figure out where things will be because you know how to use it on a laptop, so you kind of know how things are gonna work on the phone and and you you can come up to speed really quickly on a new device. We wanted to have that, but that meant we had to align the feature sets, that meant we had to align the UXs, which meant that we were going to move, you know that line who moved my cheese? we were going to move a lot of cheese. There were going to be a lot of users who, when we launched the new apps, were going to say, what what did you do? We could have communicated better about that, concretely what that really meant. I think when we launched, we launched with, uh, when we launched the new clients, and this is now two years ago, but when we launched the new clients, you know, we launched with some bugs that, frankly, we hadn't really seen in beta over the course of six months. And as soon as we launched in production, we saw them and they were they were ugly. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that you get really constrained, right? So Apple doesn't let you beta with more than 10,000 users. And I know that 10,000 users sounds like a lot, but actually, if instead of 10,000, you have 10 million, a problem that hits, you know, one in a 1,000 users or one in 10,000 users, you might not actually see in your beta. But with millions and millions and millions of users, you will see it in the real world. And, you know, you all of a sudden are affecting a lot of users and and they legitimately get upset. If I could go back and do it over again, I would have found probably there were about three bugs that I would have found before we launched that I think would have made the first four weeks a lot better for everybody. But the good news is, you know, we again talked clearly to our our customer base. We accepted that we'd done some things wrong. We told them that flat out. You know, that actually was received very well by the the customer base. And, you know, we continued on from there and we learned and we listened. And, you know, if you look where customer sentiment is today, we're, you know, we're entirely back and beyond where we were before in terms of people's happiness with the product, you know, ratings and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but yeah, that if there was a mistake I was going to, I would look at, it would be back to that launch two years ago um, of the new clients didn't go quite as smoothly as we would have liked.
1: So, Ian, who influences the way that you work? You know, name somebody you look up to and why.
0: I know you're gonna add, you're looking for me to say something like, hey, I look up to Steve Jobs, or I look up to, I don't know. I'm not going to say that. And, and the reason is I've worked in Silicon Valley now for 25 years, and I've worked for amazing companies, and I've worked for amazing bosses. I've also seen terrible leaders, and I've worked for maybe some bosses that weren't Work so great for the most part i'd say i've been really privileged to work with amazing people the thing for me about silicon valley and about working in tech it's the opportunity to learn continuously from all the people around you there's so many people in this business who bring something extraordinary to the table and it's always something you can learn from something you can learn to do better because they are so terrific at it And I think for me, the challenge is really to identify that in each and every person that I get to work with. What is it that this person brings to the table that is special, that is extraordinary, and what can I learn from that? And that's actually how I think about my world rather than, oh, I look up to this CEO or this CTO or this VC, the challenge is to identify that in all the people around you, because in tech, it's, it's incredible that this is all around you, and I think that's something that is really different in, in our industry um, than it is in many others, um, and I think if you're lucky enough to be able to manage or mentor someone like that, the thing that you want to do is to help them nurture and grow that thing that they are extraordinary at.
1: Ian, we talked about a mistake earlier, and that, that makes sense with the, the launch. But a little bit different spin on the question. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: If I could just make a second copy of me and I could go back to the beginning, I think with one I'd still, I'd still be in, in, in tech. But yeah, I would, I would be an architect. And I have no idea how my life would be different if i'd gone down that path obviously i'd have fewer patents than i have now i probably wouldn't be living in california in the bay area maybe i'd have designed something great there's a lot of architects out there and most architects just like most people in tech you know they don't get to be i don't know norman foster or zaha hadid or someone like that you know someone world famous that that people who care about design and architecture have heard of or frank geary So I guess more than likely, I'd have been an architect and I'd probably be designing strip malls somewhere. That would probably be what would happen
1: (laughs) I like it, that's great. Well, last question, Ian. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: There's two things I would say. One is that the single most defining characteristic of success is is not actually how great your idea is or how smart you are, it's how much grit and resilience you have. Because none of these paths are ever straight. None of these paths ever unfold as you expect them to. When I was first getting into the technology business, I remember somebody told me, you know you'll have the highest highs of your life and the lowest lows of your life, and you'll have them all on the same day. It's true. Tech, tech is like that. Um, and so the ability to uh, endure, the ability to be resilient, the ability to have grit in those moments where it really, really matters and futures are being decided, that's probably the first thing that I would say to them. The second thing I would say to them is is the thing that I heard when I was first becoming a CEO and you know I didn't become a CEO as a founder I became a CEO through the professional path of just you know uh, rising up through your career and CEO is the next stop and so when I was going to take my first CEO job I went and talked to a bunch of people who knew me to just kind of get their take on what I had and what I was missing and what I needed to focus on The advice I got from somebody I trusted was pretty simple. The three most important things about being a CEO are one, communicate, two, communicate, and three, when you're tired of communicating, communicate some more. And I can remember this conversation like it was yesterday. I mean, it was now 15 years ago, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I really have taken that to heart. And I think the most important thing that a leader can do is paint the end goal vision and explain the why. The end goal vision is great because it tells people what. It tells them what needs to be done, and that's super important because people need to know what the goal looks like and, and when 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 they'll be at the goal line. But if you don't explain the why, then you're not actually empowering people to contribute. You're not actually providing a framework within which they can align you know, all of their decision making, um, the decisions that they have to make that you can't make because they're far too detailed you're kind of setting yourself up or your management team up to be a bottleneck in the process, to be a choke point. And you don't want to do that. You want to free your company to run. And you want to free your company to run in formation, all heading in the same direction, but without actually having to orchestrate that. And the way that you do that is by explaining not just the what, but the why. And so that's what I would tell that entrepreneur.
1: Uh, That's fantastic advice. Well, Ian, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story. Well, your creation story at Evernote.
0: Thanks, I appreciate being here.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening